Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. If you would, open your Bibles there. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And there is a, a an old joke, a, a tired joke, I think. It's kind of one of those lame jokes. I think my oldest daughter would call it a dad joke, which is unfair. And it goes like this. You come back from a journey, say you're out in Los Angeles or something, and you're on vacation somewhere, and, and you come home and you say, well, I just flew in from Los Angeles, and boy, are my... Arms tired, har, har, har. And everybody groans and the eyes roll. Why, and I'm assuming it's remotely funny, so just bear with me. Why is it funny? Why is it funny at all? Because it's, because it's stupid, that's what somebody said. <laughs> I thought about saying that, and then I thought about the email from a parent. We don't say that in my house, but too late now. But... um it's ridiculous. It's silly. It's absurd, of course. I mean, come on. You're not going to flap your arms and fly anywhere, let alone from Los Angeles back to Rochester. It's absolutely silly to think that somehow we help the flight along in any way, or, or that we don't even need the airplane to begin with, or that somehow we're helping the airplane along, that we're adding to the power of the jet engines, that we're adding to the lift of the wings in any way, shape, or form. That's why the joke is funny. The truth is, you sit there, the plane does all the work. And today, here in Galatians 3, 1-9, through 9, Paul's looking at something equally ridiculous in the Christian faith. He's going to point out how foolish it is, how ridiculous, how silly it is to trust in Christ for salvation through faith, to believe I am saved because what the Son of God has done on the cross. That's not the foolish part, that's the true part. But then to start there and say, and now I am being made righteous because of all that I am doing. I am being made righteous in Christ, and boy, are my arms tired. It's foolishness. And that's where he starts out. Let's read verses 1 through 9 of Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit By the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
A bit of background in case you haven't been with us or were sleeping the past couple of weeks. It's fine. I get it. Paul was a church planter. As an apostle, he would travel throughout the Roman Empire. In this particular instance, he traveled throughout this region known as Galatia. And in this region of Galatia, he planted churches. That means he started churches. He would go in, he would share the gospel. Somebody would come to know Jesus as their Savior. And that for Paul and for God, for Christ, was the beginning of a new church. And then more people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. Accept him in faith. Be saved by him. Then they would begin to join together. That was the beginnings of a church. I have to say, just as an aside... There's a huge part of me that wishes we could get back to that. I speak often with other pastors about church planting. I'm involved in a board that works on church planting. and Sometimes the philosophy of church planting, we go in, we get a building, and we get a sound system, and we get lights, and and we have this group of people that's already saved, and we come together, and and we have a crucial mass, and that's how we're going to do it, and we're going to raise the funds, and we need all this money, and I just think, What happened to people just getting saved by the gospel? That's all you need to start a church. That's it right there. Just somebody, one person to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ who will then share with somebody else. And I just think sometimes we've overcomplicated church planning. I am not against churches developing into a building and a sound system and things like that. But if we could just get back to that that core root. And so Paul planted these churches, but after he left, So often these false teachers would come through. They would say, yes, what Paul said was was good, it was right, Jesus is good, he's the son of God, you need to believe in him, and, and you need to add to that faith. You need to fix yourself up, you need to live a righteous life, God requires you to live a righteous life to be saved. And these false teachers would put down Paul saying he wasn't a real apostle. He didn't know the whole gospel. He didn't know the whole story. That they were from the true church of Jerusalem. They were part of the true authority of the church. And Paul already in Galatians has defended his credentials. He has shown that what he preaches was not something he made up. It was not something somebody else made up. It was directly from Jesus Christ. He's also shown that his message and the message of the leaders in Jerusalem was actually one and the same. And that it's these false teachers that were wrong. That the true Christians agreed on the gospel that it is by faith through grace, or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It was because of what he did for us, never, ever, ever because of what we have done. And Paul has made it very clear. That what these false teachers are teaching, the idea that you must somehow work your own salvation, earn your own salvation, or add in any way to the righteousness of Jesus Christ is not just a misunderstanding of the gospel. It is the very destruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it in all of scripture, and certainly not in the book of Galatians. So let's turn to our passage now and look at what Paul is saying in these nine verses. And we're going to first start by how he's comparing faith and works and where they are in the gospel, how they 
participate in our salvation or should not be considered part of our salvation whatsoever. And he begins by pointing out how serious the error is. How often do we want to come to church and just say, oh, I just want to be encouraged. Christian message is, is really just about love and just about acceptance. And here's Paul starting this chapter, you foolish Galatians. I mean, that's not a great way to just love people and accept them. Except it is. Because when someone is so caught in error, and that error is damaging them and possibly damning their very soul, isn't it the most loving thing to say, you are wrong? Let me show you from Scripture why. You foolish Galatians. And he asks, who has bewitched you? Now, for us, that's kind of a a figure of speech. For They lived in a very spiritualistic society. I suppose we're becoming more that way now. But this was more than just a figure of speech. He's saying, you are acting as if somebody has put a spell on you. Somebody has cast a, a, a demon into you. Somebody is bewitching you, put a curse on you. This was serious business. This would have caused their their eyes to grow wide. Whoa, Paul, wait a minute. You're taking this way too far. And he's saying, no, I'm not. This is how serious it is. He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, what is he talking about? The Galatians weren't there at the cross. So how was Jesus Christ clearly portrayed as crucified? Paul is talking here about when he shared the gospel with them. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, whenever you in a conversation with a family member, a loved one, a friend, a stranger, anything, whenever we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are holding up the cross of Christ and saying, look, there's the Son of God who died in your place. And I hope, like Paul's saying here, we are clearly portraying who Jesus is, and what He has done for us. And He's telling them, you should remember that I shared the gospel with you. And the implication is, these false teachers are coming in and not sharing that gospel. The whole point of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as Al talked about in in the communion, and just this is woven all throughout Scripture, and we celebrate it, we remember it, we dwell upon it in communion. The whole point is, Jesus died in our place because we can't do it for ourselves. We cannot pay the price for our own sins. So Jesus did it for us. That message, that faith, that belief is absolutely fundamental to being a Christian. And anything that changes or distorts that destroys the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul now asks a series of questions, rhetorical questions that are getting at the heart of the foolishness that they are beginning to believe or tempted to turn toward. And he asked them in in verse 2, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now Paul's going to mention the Spirit several times in this passage. Here he uses the phrase, receive the Spirit. Verse 3, he talks about how they began by means of the Spirit. He's talking about their Christian life. In verse 4, he references things they have experienced. And in verse 5, he says that God has given them His Spirit and worked miracles among them, evidence of His Spirit at work. Paul's making a point from their experience. 
He's saying, guys, remember when you received Jesus. Go back to that. That's a good reminder for us. Go think back to when you received Jesus, when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's also tying into a long biblical understanding of the presence of God's Spirit. The Spirit here is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, of the Godhead, co-equal eternally with God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All equally God. And throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on individuals for a time and for a specific task. God, God's Spirit comes on various judges throughout the time of the judges so that they could rule or lead or rescue God's people. The Holy Spirit comes upon King Saul, even in his sin, even in what I would say, I honestly, I don't even know that King Saul's going to be in heaven. Yet God puts his presence in him to use him for a time and for a purpose. We have King David, the righteous man of God, even though he sinned, and yet God's Spirit was in him, helping him to lead and to rule. The prophets were raised up by God. God's Spirit comes upon them to serve, to preach, to declare the Word of God. Also in the Old Testament, you have this wonderful, rich example of the tabernacle. And then the temple. And Al talked about this as well, this this ongoing demonstration of what it meant for sinful people to live in a relationship with a holy God. And the sin had to be dealt with, and we have the sacrificial system. God's holiness had to be upheld. We have the separation between the people and God through the veil in the tabernacle. But God's presence was right there. In Exodus chapter 40, it talks about the presence filling the tabernacle. So the people were able to say, God is here with us. He is right here among us. The New Testament teaches that when we are saved by Jesus Christ, the moment you are saved by Christ, you turn to Him in faith, and He accepts you through the cross, we receive God's presence in our life, the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This verse shows we are saved when we receive the Holy Spirit, and we receive the Holy Spirit when we are saved. They are one and the same. To have the presence of God in our lives. Romans 8, 9 takes it even further. At the end of that verse it says, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. To have the Spirit of the Lord in your life is to be saved. And if you are saved by Jesus Christ, you have God's Holy Spirit in your life at work in you, the very presence of God with you at all times. So when Paul mentions here how they received the Spirit, he's talking about how they became Christians. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, how did this happen? Did you work really hard to earn the presence of God in your life? Did somebody come to you, Galatian churches, you Gentiles, you Romans, you Greeks, did somebody come to you and give you a list of rules to obey, to be righteous people, and then God showed up and said, now you've made it, I will be with you. And he's very clearly saying, no, 
The Gentiles didn't have the law. They didn't know this list of rules that these false teachers were coming in and teaching. And yet, they were still saved. And the very Spirit of God was in them and with them. They didn't earn God's Spirit. They received God's Spirit through faith in what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. Now let's look back at the passage with that understanding. Verse 2, he asked, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And the answer expected is, by believing. So he's building an argument here. Galatians, let's go back to the beginning. How did you become a Christian in the first place? Because the false teachers are coming in and saying, in order to be saved, you must continue through your righteous acts. And Paul's saying, that doesn't line up with where you started. Verse 3 talks about their relationship with Christ started with God saving them through Christ and putting His Spirit in them through His grace and mercy. It was because of Christ's righteousness, not theirs. It says, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And that word flesh is very interesting. Because it means flesh. It means us. The stuff we can do. Our own human efforts. But also in Paul's language, it means who we are touched by sin. Apart from Christ. He's saying, who do you think you are as a sinner to think you're going to add to the ultimate righteousness of Jesus Christ? It makes no sense. It is foolishness. And he says, you began through faith. Christ saved you. His righteousness is applied to you. And now, as if what God has done is not enough, you think you're going to add to that so that God will accept you. They've heard the gospel. They received it through faith. They were saved by God's grace and graciously given the Holy Spirit. They saw evidence of the Spirit at work in their life because they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in verse 4, Paul wonders if it was all in vain. Listen to the heart of Paul here. In verse 4 he says, Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain? They're trying to complete God's work of salvation. And when we try to complete God's work of salvation through our own efforts to make ourselves righteous, this makes what God did useless and in vain. The Christian life starts with faith in what Christ has done. That's how we are saved. That's the message of the gospel. It is by God's work through what Jesus did and we trust in that. We don't earn it. Jesus did it for us. That's how the Christian life starts. But here's where we still go astray. We think, yes, I started that way. I am saved because of what Christ did. And now, I'm a good Christian. So I've got to fix the rest of me. I've got to clean up my life. I need to look good to those around me. Paul is saying the Christian life, just as it begins in faith, it continues in faith. We are saved and Christ is changing us from the inside out. That's why in chapter 5, verse 22, we have the famous passage, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, it's not the fruit of the believer. 
is not the fruit of the Christian. Now, certainly it is being seen in our life, but we aren't the ones making it. God's presence is. Too often we take that list and we say, well, see here, you need to be more loving. You need to be more gentle. You need to, you need to do this. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying this is what the Spirit is doing in you. Trust Him. When we live those things out in obedience, we are not creating them in our life. We are trusting that the Spirit is making them in us. We didn't start our new life in Christ by our own effort. And our own effort is not what continues it. It is from faith, from start to finish. But Paul anticipates an objection here from these teachers. They might say, but that's not how God worked in the Old Testament. Paul, you're saying something new. You're changing who God is and how He's always worked. And I think as Christians, occasionally, we buy into that. Praise God I'm saved by Jesus in the New Testament because God worked some other way in the Old Testament. Back then it was by works, but now it's through faith in Jesus. That is not true. That comes from a complete misunderstanding of the Old Testament. And Paul is going to show exactly why it's not true. These false teachers might say, That God's people always had to do righteous acts specifically, had to do an act of obedience regarding the males among the people of God to be part of God's family. And they would say that what Paul is making up is something new and different. And it was this specific sign, this act of obedience that showed and participated in the family of God. And if you didn't have that, you weren't part of God's family. So Paul's going to talk about where does God's family come from? What puts us in the family of faith? Look at verses 6 through 9. He brings up Abraham. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. These false teachers, coming from a Jewish background, were teaching, we are the family of Abraham. We're better than you Gentiles. And and you non-Jewish people, you Gentiles, you Greeks, they're all the same. You have to be part of this family if God's going to accept you. And Paul says, okay, let's talk about the family of Abraham. Let's go back to the very beginning and see what God did. And here he quotes Genesis 15.6. It's going to look an awful lot lot, uh, like Galatians 3, chapter 6. It says, Genesis 15.6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Later on, Abram's name would be changed to Abraham by God, but here it is the shortened form. Now notice what Paul's doing. Paul's not debating ideas here. He's not entering into some logical debate, well, my ideas are better than your ideas. What Paul is doing is going straight to Scripture. Christians. Anytime 
We want to discuss what it means to be a Christian. Anytime we want to share with others what it means to be a Christian, anytime we want to interact, maybe even argue at times about things we believe, it has to be based on Scripture. Our ideas don't cut it. They're not good enough. And so Paul takes them right back to Scripture. He says, okay, you want to do this? You want to talk about Abraham? Let's look at what Scripture says about Abraham. So Paul quotes this passage. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's saying here, and and I'll show you, what is the source of Abraham's righteousness? At the very beginning, how did he become righteous? Did he clean up his life? Did he make himself good? Did he follow God's rules? And then God said, now, Abraham, you're my guy. Now your family is my family. That's not what happened. It says Abraham believed God and God credited to him. Applied to his account. Pastor Al talked about this as well. Abraham, just like every single one of us, was in debt to God because of sin. We owed God our very lives. That is the payment for sin. It is the judgment for sin. Yet God said, Abraham, you have this huge debt of sin in your life. Not only does that need to be erased and for anyone to be saved, righteousness has to be applied. And so God said, you can't do that, Abraham, but I can do it for you. And so instead of counting your sins against you, I will look at you and consider you, credit to you, righteous. Now, from that day on, was Abraham a perfectly, wonderfully holy guy? No. He was pretty messed up. I, I mean, not like totally, but... He made some pretty big mistakes. And again, and I like to point this out, I love this about people in Scripture because I can kind of identify with that, and I'm guessing you can too. God works with some messed up people. But God's not there keeping score about what Abraham has done. God is keeping score with what God has done. And he says, and he looks at Abraham, I consider you righteous. Abraham didn't earn his righteousness. But the false teachers might say, well, of course, Abraham trusted God and was considered righteous. This is because Abraham was obedient. It's because Abraham followed God and those acts of righteousness allowed him to be declared righteous. But here's where Paul's genius shines. When did this happen? The order of Scripture itself proves that those false teachers are wrong. The law came later. The sign of the covenant that they were pointing to as so crucial came later. This was before all that. God declares Abraham righteous. Human effort has never been and will never be the starting point of our own righteousness. The concept, the concept that God puts our works on a scale and looks at the good and the bad and that somehow determines your eternal destiny is an absolute lie. It is so popular in our world today and it is garbage. That is not how God works. If you have that picture of God, throw it out. It is wrong. Either God will look at us and say, 
you are still in your sins. Doesn't matter how good you were or how bad you are, you can never be good enough. And we will go to hell for eternity. Or he will look at us and he will say, you're a sinner. But you've received my son, Jesus Christ, as your savior. So his righteousness, though you do not deserve it, is applied to you. I don't see your sin. I see my son's righteousness. Come be with me in my presence forever. That's how God works. God's plan has always been to save all people through faith in what he does. Paul brings this up in verses 8 and 9. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. says to these Gentiles, and I'm assuming most of us are Gentiles today, not Jewish. And he's saying it's always been God's plan to save you through faith. This was not a change in God. It was not something new. It was his plan from the very beginning. And then verse 9, these false teachers are claiming that they have the blessing of Abraham and only in them and what they teach can anybody else have this blessing of Abraham. And look at what Paul says. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's saying to those false teachers, you've got it right. Abraham's the beginning. You've got it right. We need to come to God like Abraham did. You've got that part right. But you are so messed up in thinking that Abraham came through his own righteousness because that's not what Scripture says. We're going to stop here today at verse 9. It kind of ends on a high note with this idea of being counted righteous, being a part of the blessing that Abraham had as a man of faith. But I do want to look ahead to next week because Paul's going to give a contrast in verse 10. He's going to say, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. He says, look, those are your options. You can be a part of this wonderful blessing through faith in Jesus. Or, if you want to trust in what you can do, what humanity can do in our own righteousness and our own efforts, by flapping your arms really, really hard, if that's what you want, you're under a curse. Friends, if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior... You are part of something big. You are part of the eternal plan of God to save people through God's effort. And we now know today something Abraham didn't know, that that effort would come about, would culminate through the death of God's very son. Abraham just believed somehow, some way, God will save me. We now have the cross to look to. We have Christ clearly portrayed as crucified before us. And we need to hold on to that. But if you are trusting in your own righteous works to save you, if you are trusting in your own efforts to fix you up and clean you up and continue your Christian life, you're missing the point. And you may be missing out on the blessing of salvation. But here's the good news. All that is necessary to be saved is faith in who Christ is and what He has done. And the Christian life not only starts in faith, but it continues in faith. I don't normally do this, but I want to ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads. As I prepared this sermon, I thought, there's a response that needs to happen here. 
And, and f- this response is between you and God. I'm not going to know. Nobody's going to know. But I want to ask you a few questions. Have you received Jesus Christ in faith? But as you look at your life now, you can see that you're trying to control your life, to fix things in your life, to make yourself righteous through your own acts. Just consider that for a moment. Is that where you are? And if so, I'd like you to pray silently, just between you and God. Just confess that that's wrong. It's foolish, as Paul says. It's wrong for us to try to take over from Jesus in our lives and finish what he started. We must not only believe in Christ for our salvation, but also for our present and ongoing righteousness. So take a moment and just say, Jesus, thank you for paying it all that I could stand righteous before my God. And then I want to ask, Have you truly believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you come to that moment in your life where you say, I can't do it, but Jesus has done it for me. And I believe in the Son of God, the Savior, who died on the cross in my place and rose from the dead. Friends, too often we miss this step of faith. We get busy doing things for God, participating in the church, trying to act like a good Christian, but we've never actually said yes to Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you today, if you're ready, to pray to Jesus, I need you. I'm tired of trying to do this myself. I am lost in my sin but I believe that Jesus died in my place on the cross and rose from the dead promising eternal life and I want to live in Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel that saves us. Thank you for the gospel that is the security of our righteousness. Thank you for the gospel that will be our foundation when one day we stand before you. And we are judged not because of our own works or righteousness, but because of who Jesus is. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who has never received Jesus as their Savior, who's never experienced that rescue in their life, may today be the day that they cry out to you, save me, I cannot do it myself. And God, maybe there are those Christians here that are proud of themselves, thinking, look at what I've done in Christ. Look at all I have given to Him. May you humble them. And maybe there's others saying, I can't even keep my head above water. I'm trying so hard to be a good person, to please God, but I can't do it. Father, turn their gaze back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind us that not only are we saved in Christ, We are constantly, through the power of your Spirit at work in us, being made righteous in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.